0: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Andrew Sloin, Assistant Professor of History at Baruch College at the City University of New York, and he's here to talk to us about his new book, The Jewish Revolution in Belarusia, Economy, Race and Bolshevik Power, published this year by Indiana University Press. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Max, and it's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic.
0: Um, so the traditional first question on New Books in Jewish Studies, how did you come to write this book?
1: Well, um, I would say it's it's it was sort of a circuitous process. Um, I, I've been interested in Russian and Soviet history for a very long time now, I think starting back when I was in college uh, and first read The uh, Dostoevsky in a in a literature class, and it was sort of has sort of been a downward slide since then. But um, I think that I came to the specific question of Jewish history in Belarus again through literature, really through reading uh, Isaac Babel and through reading um, Yiddish literature produced in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. And I, when I started in graduate school at the University of Chicago. I knew that I wanted to work on the history of Jewish radicalism in the Russian Empire and, and the history of Jewish socialism, but I was – at first, I was convinced that I was going to work in the area of intellectual history in some form or another, and it, and it was really when I, um, I had spent a summer in uh, Eastern Europe, in Lithuania and um, other parts of Eastern Europe doing pre-dissertation research and spending time also at the at the uh, Vilnius Yiddish Institute. And I, after spending time in the, in the archives in Vilna, I ended up going to Minsk on something of a lark and spending two weeks there, be, really because my reason for going there initially was the only thing I really knew about Minsk was that one of my favorite writers, Moishe Kulbach, had gone to Minsk in 1928 to take part in in the process of jewish yiddish cultural reconstruction and um so i went to minsk and i was there for 2 weeks in the archives and i the first the first archival file that i called up i remember was a file on um from the commissariat of enlightenment talking about anti-religious campaigns in the jewish community and it was quite uh, eye-opening to just sit there for for a while and and leaf through this file and see just page after page of reports about events that were going on in the jewish community and the way the party was trying to structure these events and the people who were participating in them and after two weeks of doing research and just calling up file after file and seeing all of this rich material i knew that this was the place that i wanted to focus on but I have to say that the specific project came out really from from as I think most projects that begin as dissertations from the insight and input of my dissertation committee, who all really just encouraged me to pursue the project in very specific ways. So I really have to thank Richard Helley, who is my uh, my the first person who really sort of encouraged me to pursue Jewish history in the context of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union in general of the late Richard Helley. And then my advisor, Leora Auslander, who just sort of encouraged me throughout to push the boundaries of traditional Jewish history, and Sheila Fitzpatrick, who became my go-to person on on Soviet history, and who really encouraged me to think about the what the archive in Minsk showed me about the social history of this place, and and finally Moish Postone, who. Always encouraged me to to try to place this story that I was telling about the specific phenomenon of Jewish social transformation in Belarus in a broader context of the social and economic transformations of the of the global economy in the 1920s.
0: That's brilliant. Um, so first off, you can uh, maybe you could sort of set the scene um, for us um, in terms of what the book tackles by giving us some of the historical background to um, Bielorussia and the Jewish community there before the revolution. And maybe if you also wanted to uh, outline some of the major claims and arguments of your study before we sort of dive into a um, chapter by chapter um, look.
1: Sure. Well, I think what, what is interesting about Bielorussia in the context of, of Soviet history is the fact that this was one of the few places, including parts of Ukraine as well, but really one of the places that was a center of the of Jewish life in the Pale of Settlement. It was a center of, of religious life, of, of Jewish demographic concentration throughout the period of the late uh, czarist era after and this was a, a, a region that was originally part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and was taken over by the Russian empire during the partitions of Poland at the end of the 18th century. And this was a, so what struck me as being unique about this place is that in, in many respects, it was betwixt and between the old, this old Polish uh, Republic and the, and the Russian empire. And then this new experiment in, in uh, Soviet social transformation that that emerged after the revolution and Belarusia in in general was a the, the, or Jewish the Jewish population in, in Belarusia was um, quite unique in so far as it, it, it Jews constituted a rather large percentage of the population particularly the urban population they according to the uh, the 1926 sentence, they constituted about. Uh, a little over 8% of the general population of 4 million people. So there are about 400,000 or so plus Jews living in Belarus in total or in the Soviet Republic of Belarus in total. But they formed uh, frequently either majorities or pluralities and sometimes quite large majorities in the major urban centers. So they constituted over half of the urban population as a whole. They constituted major- or. Majorities in cities like Mosier and, and, uh, and Slutsk and other places. And in Minsk, the capital, by night, they had, by 1926, they counted for about 42% of the population. And so this was a place that w- where Jews were concentrated. And not only were Jews concentrated, but they were, they also had a long history of social strife within the community. So what I try to do in the book is to examine the ways that the revolution rather unexpectedly Opens up a certain space for a real radical transformation of Jewish social, political, cultural, and economic life that is is frequently characterized as, in some sense, being being uh, implemented from above by the Soviet state. But what I try to show in the book is that really this is a process that has a long history in in uh, in these Jewish communities and is being driven in all of these small towns and cities of Belarusia from participants at the local level who engaged in the Bolshevik project in one way or another for out of conviction or opportunism or for a whole variety of reasons as one can imagine. uh, But ultimately engaged in the process of transforming not only Jewish society, which they did radically, but really played a critical role in the establishment of, of uh, Soviet power in general in, in Bielorussia. So, One of the big claims of the book is to bring that that um, story to the forefront and to really emphasize the fact that this was a a process of of Jewish cultural reconstruction that was driven by people within the community, that this was not simply a state down driven process and that it it. that it was uh from the outset was driven by groups that had been traditionally marginalized in the jewish community so particularly i spent a lot of time in the book thinking about artisans and jewish artisans whether in in particularly in the jewish in the quote unquote jewish industry so in the leather working industry the textile industry the tailoring industry woodworking and so forth and the way that they become key cogs in the process of sovietization and bolshevization really so that is one of the big claims of the book and one of the, the stories that I, I follow. And then the other story – one of the other stories that I follow is specifically the process of Jewish engagement with the party and the, Bolshe- the Bolshevik party. Because Jews enter into the Bolshevik party and they enter in, um, in rather significant numbers in uh, – particularly in the early period of, after the revolution – and they play a critical role in, in helping to establish Soviet power in the region. And in some ways, I would say the revolution in Belarusia is kind of unthinkable without the role that, that Jews, particularly in, in particular, a lot of Jews who had previously been members of the Jewish Socialist Bund, which is the largest Jewish, uh, socialist party in the Pale of Settlements played in in supporting and ultimately uh, helping to build this, this socialist experiment. And then the final claim that I think is critical to the entirety of the book is that this is a process that is this process of what I call the Jewish revolution is obviously structured by, by by politics and by the politics of both the party and the state and the internal politics of the community. But it's also very much uh, structured by the economic uh, limits and possibilities of Socialist society in general, so the book really focuses on the it, it 's it's a, it's a history of Jews within the soviet Union, but it 's also a history of Soviet society in this period and it examines the way in which these repeated economic crises that that continually recur throughout the 1920s begin to restructure the way not only the soviet society, the Soviet state is dealing with Jews at a social level but also discourses about Jews in over the course of the 1920s. So I spent a lot of the book thinking about the way that economic crisis leads to a certain type of uh, uh, public conversation about the place and the role and identity of Jews within post-revolutionary society.
0: Great. Um, So we're going to delve into um, all of that uh, a bit further um, so we'll start with your first chapter, which is titled "Making Jews Bolsheviks," and here you look at Jewish radicalization at the grassroots level in the early years of the Bolshevik Revolution. Tell us a bit about this.
1: Well, yes, this the chapter I began. I became I sort of structured this chapter by thinking first of all about um, a series of reports I found rather extensive reports, volumes really, about the 1921 purge in a party purge in, in Belarusia, And this purge was quite, uh, quite interesting. It, it was not a purge as we think of in the 19, in the 1930s, where it sort of conducted clandestinely behind closed doors. So this is the purge in 1921 was a rather open process where uh, in every, in every fact, in every party cell, there were public meetings for where people basically discussed their, uh, their personal history and their biographies. And so what these purge records provide are written biographies by people who joined the party. So I use these, these written biographies to think about, to both analyze and to think about the motivations and the various motivations that led Jews to, to enter into the party over the course of the revolution and to really trace the process of radicalization at the, at the grassroots level and I think when we look at when we look at um, the relationship between Jews and the revolution, the, the date that really sticks out in a lot of people's minds is 1917, the Constituent Assembly elections after the Bolshevik Revolution, where Jews in Belarusia and in Minsk, in particular, vote overwhelmingly for what's called the Kholyy Yisrael bloc, which is a block of of sort of general Zionists and 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 non-Zionists, but what might might call traditional. Uh, Jewish national politics um, who dominate in 1917. And usually this is taken as a sort of indication of Jewish political identity over the course of the ensuing years. But what I what I try to show in the chapter is that those that snapshot of 1917 is just radically transformed in Belarusia in the ensuing years through, number one, the process of just political violence and war, because the war uh the, the the revolution takes place in 1917 but it spills over into first german occupation during world war 1 and then in february of 1918 the bolsheviks come back to power briefly in december of 1918 but then in the summer of 1919 belarus is overrun by the polish army of the new newly reestablished polish state in the period of the polish uh the polish soviet war and it's not until 1920 when when the Red Army reestablishes par- power. And what I try to – what I see and what I saw in these purge records was the profound effect that the processes of occupation under initially the Germans but really under the Poles in the period of counter-revolutionary violence played in radicalizing populations that previously had been quite um, – one might say moderate or conservative in their politics – and what I sh- what I try to trace in that chapter is the story of predominantly young Jews, and these are people I think the the, the average age is twenty five and under of the people who are really joining the party, and some of these are are people who had uh, are, who had longer standing uh, ties to specifically Jewish political groups, whether it was the Bund or Poale Zion, the the uh, the socialist Zionist party. Or um, other, or the Mensheviks, or other other parties, but over the course of the war and the revolution, they begin to gravitate to towards the Bolsheviks because of the frequently the the belief that the Bolsheviks are the ones who are fighting the the counter revolutions and also pogromist violence. And there, but to a large degree, these are people who are really coming of age politically during during the whole revolutionary process. And there are a lot of young people who are who are bound up in the revolution and who go off and fight in the Red Army and do and and participate in many different ways. So that by 1920, after the revolution, after the revolution, after the civil war, when the Bolsheviks have established power, you have this group of um, of. Jewish radicals who play a critical role in establishing both party and Soviet institutions. And just to sort of put this into context, by when the Bolsheviks retake Minsk in July of 1920, there's only about 100 Communist Party members in the entirety of Belarusia. So this is a party that is very much in need of support and they're looking around for support and they look and they find the the group that on the ground looks like the great the closest approximation to the proletariat in whose name the revolution had been made which is the Jewish working class and partic- but these it's not a, it's not a it's not a classical working class in the sense of the kind of ideal type of of blacksmiths and proletarian metal workers that one finds in a place like Petersburg but the Jewish working class is overwhelmingly an artisanal class and so these are artisans who are again woodworkers, tailors, and all, and these types of, of individuals who are, for the large part, if they had pre-revolutionary political leanings, they were Bundists, and the and and so a large number of Bundists between enter into the party between 1917 and 1920 to the point that I, there's a debate over how many exactly, but somewhere along the lines of 300, I estimate that number is quite underestimated probably closer to 400 former Bundists enter into the party and they enter in and provide a a real um, sort of studying presence in, in the party. And so what I, um, what I try to show in, in the chapter, particularly I, I end the chapter by focusing on a particular set party cell, which is the party cell of the Yev Partz Shkol, which is the Jewish party school, which was a very unique party cell insofar as it was a specifically Jewish institution that was formed to educate uh, workers and Jewish workers in the early Bolshevik period. But I use the party biographies to give a sense of the profile, a composite profile of these people who have joined the party and who are participating in this debate. And again, many of them are young. They tend to be, you know, Bilingual, politically active, and extremely convinced of their of their uh, political bona fides as Bolsheviks, precisely because of the fact that a whole large number of them had been Bundists and had been loyal Bundists, and so in this party cell there are about forty members members in the party cell, twenty seven of them had been former Bundists, and so th- I what I show in this in this in this chapter I think is a process whereby. Jewish society is being radicalized, but the groups who are really being radicalized into the Bolshevik party are people who came distinctly for the lar- for the for uh, in in a in a large percentage are people who came from distinctly Jewish politics in the first place
0: great, so you then discuss the discourses around speculation um in Belarusia. What was speculation and how did discourses around it function for different purposes and, and different groups?
1: Yeah, speculation was a really interesting crime insofar as it remained pretty much undefined through the early period of the, of the 1920s. Um, it, and it was used as a sort of catch-all phrase to, to discuss practices that were seen as being what I call, I think at one point, sort of tongue-in-cheek Unkosher forms of trade in the in the early Soviet period, and this involved everything from from uh, selling selling goods at prices that were above uh, state mandated prices in periods of monopoly, to the selling of goods that were understood as being contraband goods that had been under state monopoly, and particularly it inv- it comes to involve uh, the the process of Buying and selling uh, different forms of money in the early in the early Soviet period. So, why I thought speculation was a particularly interesting category to focus on, and, I, and in this chapter, I really look at court records of people who are being policed for engaging supposedly in speculation. But what I, I use speculation really as a way to think about the way the the Bolsheviks were thinking about the phenomenon of capitalism. And what I thought was interesting about speculation was that what you see these anti-speculation campaigns is that you see, when when the Bolsheviks talked about overcoming capitalism or trying to transform capitalism, I, I had the question: Well, what does this mean on the ground? And what it meant on the ground in the in the context of Belarus was really policing trade and the market. And so I use the speculation anti-speculation campaigns. To establish a certain way that the Bolsheviks are thinking about the phenomenon of capitalism in general in a post-revolutionary society where the revolution has been made in the name of overcoming capitalism. And of course – well, not of course, but it turns out to be the case that a very large percentage of the people who are being arrested for speculation in this period are Jews. And there are Jews who are, who a lot of them have been engaged in trade prior to the revolution. Jews make up, you know, estimates of three quarters to higher a percent of, of, um, of all private traders in the pre-revolutionary period. And that continues into the post-revolutionary period, particularly after the introduction of what's called the new economic policy in 1921, which is a period of market liberalization. Where the Bolsheviks are, due to uh, shortages and mass revolt and across the country, they rather begrudgingly reintroduce market trade or something that looks like market trade across the Soviet lands, and they legalize trade. And Jews enter into these types of um, of new, newly formed market relations. But in this world, where there's still a deep suspicion of the market and a deep suspicion of trade in general. So it, what I show in the chapter is that particularly in periods of social crisis and there's an inflationary crisis that begin there well there's an inflationary crisis during the war during the civil war and then in 1923 there's another massive inflationary hyperinflationary crisis where the problem of trade becomes acute because prices are going up, goods are not moving, and at this moment there 's these massive uh, anti speculation campaigns where Jews are largely being rounded up and and being uh, arrested for engaging in these practices that are in theory frequently legal right? they 've been legalized in the course of the revolution. But they're, they, because of this sort of murky area in which trade is, is resides in this post-revolutionary moment, they're being targeted as in some sense the the capitalist class in post-revolutionary society. And then I, at the end of the chapter, I look at – I move from the sort of courts and the actual legal pro, uh, prosecution and the arrests of these people – to the public discourse that emerges around trade and speculation. And what I think is interesting in in thinking about this is that if you look at the court records, Jews from all over the social spectrum are engaging in these forms of trade. So you have red army soldiers and you have officials and you have, you know, party members who are engaging in, in these quote unquote forbidden forms of trade. But when it's constructed in a rhetorical sense in the newspapers and cartoons and in poems and in, 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 and the feyotons that are written in this period, the, the speculators are always characterized as basically archaic Jews from the shtetl and rabbis and these old types who are unable to come to grips with the revolution. So there's this real dichotomy that opens up between the practices of anti-speculation policing and the discourse that emerges that I think reveals quite a bit about the um, this post-revolutionary uh, ambivalence about capitalism, and as I sort of argue ambivalence about Jews also, which continues throughout the 1920s.
0: So your next chapter discusses Jewish attempts to integrate into the working class and reform Jewish identity through the valorization of labor, um, and how these attempts ran into persistent economic limitations. Tell us a bit about this.
1: Yeah, well this is sort of the twin to the other chapter. insofar as the first chapter or the second chapter looks at cap- the the capitalists after the revolution of the constructed capitalists. This is the chapter that really thinks about Jews as workers and Jews as proletarians. But again, the curious thing about Jews in this moment is that they never really the, the Jewish working class never really fits into the canonical Marxist analysis of what the proletariat is. They're artisans. They're frequently uh, self-employed or they employ a few laborers or they work for a uh, small shop in small shops. And they are as artisans or what are uh, they're really what are called cottage producers or coups They are um, they are uh, in some ways rather liminal in, in relation to the working class, because traditionally these are people who would produce not for wages, but on on orders and on um on uh, specific requests from from consumers, but in the period of the revolution, they are being really brought into new forms of of social production, and particularly after the introduction of the new economic policy, they are critical for producing consumer goods in the in the in the in the, in the period of the NEP. And we think of the NEP frequently as a market process and the legalization of trade. But what I really found to be quite fascinating here was the process. This is the fact that this is also a process of the legalization of production of a different of a different type of petty production, and Jews are critical to to the uh, the establishment of these new social relations in Belarus because they're producing all of the goods that in theory are going to be traded to the peasantry in order to make the NEP economy work. So they're being brought in rather on a, for uh, these these real forces of social necessity that are that are brought forth in the process of the revolution, and yet at the same time they're utterly in, they're utterly they remain liminal because Jews constitute about ninety percent of all of the kustari or the the artisan producers in this period, and this continues a long trend in which Jews had been the primary uh, artisanal producers in the region. And but yet, as custodii, they were never quite seen as fully proletarian. Now, when they entered into state workshops and when they were brought into into larger units or larger institutions of production and into the trade unions in particular, they did gain access to a sort of status of being part of the of the proletariat and, and rather self consciously so. But what I, what I see over the course of the 1920s is that in moments of economic crisis, the Soviet state went about, the, the, it went about solving these economic crises in quite the same way that liberal capitalist societies solve these, these crises. When there, there are problems of overproductions of goods, when there's problems of basically um, overaccumulation of goods over overaccumulation of labor, the Soviet state responds by laying people off, and so there's mass unemployment that is driven by these crises in, in that emerge, particularly in 1923. But the crisis is interesting because what it means is that it's not just that Jews are being thrown out of these state, in, it, it, or that it's not only that that workers are being thrown out of these of these uh, state institutions. But they're being thrown out of these larger workshops and they're being given permission to basically become private small producers. So they become kustari. And these kustari are simultaneously inscribed in, in discursively as being Jewish. And so – and it's quite – what I find interesting about the kustari is that they're really and, – and kustar production in general – Is the only, it's the only aspect of economic life in in the, in post revolutionary society that comes under the direct control of the Jewish section of the Communist Party, which is an indication of exactly how Jewish these institutions were. So in moments of economic crises, these, these people who were formerly trade unionists and good proletarians and fully, fully uh, integrated members of the, of the proletarianized workforce are thrown out of work into these small workshops and these artisanal workshops where they become and insofar as they become they're also being reinscribed as basically being Jewish. And so there's this kind of spectrum that develops of what it means to be a proletarian labor. And there's a direct relationship I argue between uh, this category of proletarianness and a category of ethnicity. And uh, in, in some sense, the more you're integrated into the Soviet economy in this period, the more you lose the stigma of, of Jewish ethnic identity. But once you're thrown out of work and you're reintegrated into these older forms of artisanal production, once again, Jews are being sort of understood and governed as, in, as essentially Jews in this moment. So I try to work out that spectrum of the relationship between labor on one hand and ethnicity on the other in the course of examining these, these, uh, these rather, um, flexible forms of labor that are emerging in the post-revolutionary period.
0: That's very, very interesting. Um, The next chapter opens with a compelling account of a theatrical trial of the fictional character um, Boncher the Silent. Um, Tell us about this and its relevance for your assertion that the project of Jewish cultural transformation uh, was limited by imperatives of economic and social reconstruction.
1: Yeah, well, I I love this this uh, trial. It's basically it opens with this story that I that was in a, in a newspaper of this trial that it takes place in a workers' club where hundreds of people gather to watch this this uh, fictitious show trial of Bancha Schwag, of the Silent Silent who is a fictitious uh, a fictitious character known uh, to all Yiddish readers from um, from uh it's a parrot and it is um it's a really um it, it, it's a trial where bansha is seen as basically the sort of jewish everyman he is kind of he lives this horrible life he's oppressed by everyone and then in the in the parrot story he basically finally um dies and goes to heaven and he's given his, he's put on trial in heaven for all of the um the things that he didn't do and didn't say during his, his life and the fact that he never stood up for himself and he's finally exonerated and he's, and he's offered all of the fruits of the kingdom of heaven. And he basically asks for a buttered roll, like uh, to show the, the utter limitations of his conceptualization of what heaven might look like. And so I, so I think that there's an an interesting moment in which the Bolsheviks, when these Bolshevik, what I call sort of cultural reformers or these participants in a process that I see as as part of a Bolshevik Jewish Enlightenment, or what was known traditionally as the Haskalah, but in this case the Haskola in a very Yiddish sense, uh, who are trying to appropriate these old forms of Jewish cultural production and to put them in, back into the public sphere, but in a in a Bolshevized form. And this is just one one small moment in a whole process of attempted Jewish cultural reconstruction. Where you have we, you have Jews who are who are particularly an older generation of Jewish radicals, particularly those who came from the Bund, who are very much committed to the construction of a of a um, new type of way of being Jewish in in post revolutionary society, and so they're they're trying to construct different rituals of Jewish behavior to replace traditional religious rituals. So they introduce things like the red bris, very famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, where uh, where um, circumcision is no longer the process of entry into the, the communal sphere, rather this type of christening where young Jewish babies are given up to the revolution and given appropriately revolutionary names, you know, like Carl for Marx and 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 so forth. And there are th- there's this whole attempt to construct a, a a a um a real cultural revolution and a new type of what David Schneer has referred to as a a Soviet Yiddish culture. And I think that's absolutely true, but I think that in thinking about this in relationship to the to the old um Haskalah, the the Hebrew Enlightenment, there was a there it, the Hebrew Enlightenment was never simply about about cultural reconstruction of Jews and making Jews modern and all of these things we think of in terms of the Enlightenment, was there's also a very pronounced social dimension to it. Even going back to the old 19th century Haskalah reformers, many of them, David Friedlander and Notenotkin and Hirsch Peretz and others, had an idea that Jews not only needed to be transformed culturally, but socially as well. And they needed to be productivized into productive labor. They, need, they needed to be taken out of of the types of trade and petty trade practices that had characterized Jewish social life in these areas, and they needed to be transformed into into productive laborers. And it's this aspect of the of the cultural the 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 Haskalah project that I sort of argue over the course of the chapter is the one that the Bolsheviks really end end up taking up, particularly younger Bolshevik uh, cultural reformers. So there's kind of a split, a generational split, as there are on many of these issues. Between this older generation that wants to that really focuses on the cultural dimension of of social transformation and the younger generation that is in some sense concerned with the process of Jewish social integration into into the revolution and it is um but what what I sort of argues that even that position is quite tenuous because it's tied again to the to the nep economy and to the idea that Jews are going to be productivized in all of these networks that are established. During the NEP to reestablish the Soviet uh, economic life, and so they're brought into the into the, this process, the, these processes in a moment that is very that is fleeting, because by the end of the 1920s and beginning 1927, 1928, the NEP in and of itself begins to malfunction and begins to enter into its sort of death spiral. And in insofar as as NEP goes down, all of those politicians who are and, and party members and Jewish party members who are also supporting Cultural reconstruction and the moment of NEP are also going down as well. So I end the chapter by focusing on Abram Balin, who's the second head of the Jewish section of the Communist Party, the Yavseksia. Um, and he is a real sort of proponent of this of this type of of cultural transformation that is tied fundamentally to social to this idea of social transformation, and he rises up as basically a social transformer. In the NEP period, and he's very concerned about improving the conditions of the Kustari in the countryside and in the cities and to and to focus on the cultural reconstruction of young Jews. And he is is brought in and in in into power and he rises up in the period of the NEP. And when the NEP goes wrong, he goes wrong with it. And he basically gets driven out and is ultimately accused of being a counter-revolutionary and, uh, and an opponent of the party for doing precisely what it was that he was brought to uh, to Minsk to do and, and brought to power to do, which is to, to introduce this process of Jewish cultural and social uh, reformate reformation on, on the ground. So I look at th- in the chapter as a whole, I look at this relationship there between culture uh, cultural production and social reconstruction in this utterly fraught period. That's uh, that is basically Uh, bordering on the verge of this creative period of the 1920s and the onset of the Stalin revolution at the end of the 1920s.
0: So the next chapter is an examination of the Bolshevik anti-Bundism campaign. Um, Tell us about this and its relevance for the trajectory of uh, the Bolsheviks nationalities policy more generally.
1: Yeah, well, the anti-Bundist campaign begins in in 1926, and what and this is a moment where suddenly, um, the, well, actually, the the earliest missives are in 1925, but it's 1926 where the rubber hits the road, and the party begins to really police not as they insist it's not against Bundists specifically or individuals who had previously been part of the Bund, but against what they understand as the spirit of Bundism that continues to dominate in. In uh, in party cells, and what Bundism means is that that uh, Jews are too interested in protecting their own trades and their own trade unions. They're interested in reestabli- in in, uh, in protecting their own trades. They're in, they overvalorize the history of the Bund itself. They are uh, too committed to Yiddish educational projects and so forth. And so in 1926 the party circulates missives against against the phenomenon of Bundism and this leads to direct uh the direct policing of of um party uh, of party cells at a local level where these campaigns are brought into the party cells and there are these uh political meetings that are held where people discuss the problem of Bundism and what's interesting I think about these this phenomenon is that the the use of the concept of Bundism becomes a rather flexible term through which I argue? Really, what's being discussed here is the is the issue of Jewish ethnicity in the course of in the in the course of post revolutionary society, because uh, um, Bundists are understood as those who are in some sense too aggressively uh, promoting Jewish particular Jewish interests within the course of this. General revolutionary milieu. So the um, but what it, what is most important for my story is the fact that where these where these uh, campaigns are taking place and where they're focusing on worker cells. And so again, it's this process of trying to reconstitute um, not simply Jewish social life, but really a, a conception of what it means to be um, acceptably Jewish in the course of the post-revolutionary period. Whereas in the earlier period, Bundists were understood as in some sense being uh, integrally tied to this project. By this period, there's obviously a massive um, turn and, a, and the emergence of a, of a quite profound sense of ambivalence about the place of Jews in, in, uh, in the revolutionary project as a whole. And this, I would say, is, is, uh, becomes a way in which Jewishness, which in some sense has been the, the very idea of speaking about Jewishness and speaking about ethnicity, has become somewhat forbidden in the in the post-revolutionary period because the Bolsheviks have outlawed anti-Semitism. They've insisted th- from the outset that Jews are part of the revolutionary project and they're to be integrated. And yet, in this moment, there's this massive campaign that takes place across Belarusia, which is effectively specifically targeting Jewish members of the of the party, as they quite clearly understand from the course of the from the, uh, evidence of the archival or the archival evidence of these meetings that are taking place in worker cells across the Republic in this period.
0: So you'd then move on to discuss the campaign around, um, Trotskyism. Uh, tell us about this and how it intersected with discourses of ethnicity and how it was structured by economic crisis.
1: Yeah, this is, this is in some sense, the mirror of the, of the Bundism chapter because insofar as what I think is interesting about the, Trotsky, the anti-Trotskyism campaigns is that they they emerge after Trotsky is expelled from, from the party in 1927, and Trotsky and his followers. And there if, between 1927 and 1928, there's this massive uh, process of weeding out, again, a massive campaign to weed out Trotskyists and, Tr- and secret Trotskyist sympathizers in this period. And it becomes – and if you read it simply at the level of ethnicity – it is a very curious phenomenon because some, something along the lines of 81% of the 320 some odd people who are identified as voting for Trotskyist positions in one vote or another across Belarus of those 81% are Jews. So it looks on some levels like it's a phenomenon of basically Jewish social or ethnic solidarity on some level. But what what I started to see when I They when I saw in the the archive, the breakdown of these people and and sort of their profiles, um, they are not simply uh, they're not simply Jews. They're also workers of a very particular type. So overwhelmingly, these people are, again, leather workers, woodworkers and and um, textile workers, set tailors and seamstresses and these varieties of artisanal producers. And they are quite uh, interesting to follow over the course of this campaign because they make up the vast of these accused, of these accused Trotskyists. And what makes them Trotskyists or what makes them part of what's called the opposition, the United Opposition, initially has absolutely nothing to do with ethnicity. What they're angry about is the fact that they're workers in these, in these small shops and these shops are all being, in some sense, Uh, rationalized over the course of the onset, first the crisis of the NEP, and then the onset of Stalinist industrialization, where there's a turn, you know, on one level there's a turn to industrialization and there's the, the, there's the sort of rhetorical idea that they're going to modernize the Soviet economy at the end of the 1920s by building factories and mechanizing factories and these types of things that we sort of think of canonically as part of the Stalin industrial revolution of the late 1920s. But the primary way that they're rationalizing industrial production in this period, particularly in the small workshops and in our, in these kind of manufacturing areas, is by cutting wages and by slashing wages across and by, by by freezing wages and in a moment of inflation. Actually, so so what is bringing workers in this moment into opposition with the government and or with not just the government but the party the party as well. Is precisely economistic questions in the in the in the 1926 1927 period, and it happens to be the case that the, the the industries that are most aggressively targeted for wage restriction are precisely those Jewish industries, and they I would say they're targeted because they're consumer producing industries, and so it has it, it's not a, that they're punishing Jews; it's that basically these are goods that are understood as being necessary for industrialization and industrial society as a whole. And they're trying to prevent wage – they're trying to impre- price, prevent price inflation in these industries and one of the ways they do this is to restrict wage growth. And so workers are angry about this as workers in some sense always are when these types of phenomenon happen and they're organizing about it and and they're criticizing the party. And in this moment of the anti-Trotskyist campaign, these types of criticisms come to be read by the party as basically being support for the opposition because Trotsky by this point has in some sense re uh, reimagined himself as a, as once again as a sort of defender of worker inter- interests and they and so what begins as a rather um, i would say n- not many of these people express hostility towards trotsky himself he had he had been a very um, vocal opponent of specific Jewish politics earlier in his revolutionary career so they but what they 're expressing is in some sense a, a certain support for some of the policies that he 's promoting in this period. But they get branded as Trotskyists and as supporters of the Trotskyist opposition. And then as the discourse unfolds over late 19, uh, over late 1928, particularly as the party begins to hold these meetings again in these party cells that are being targeted for Trotskyist opposition, which again are overwhelmingly worker cells. They're not targeting you know, uh, people who are in the cultural spheres and whatnot. It's a worker phenomenon. But in those discourses, workers themselves begin to sort of attack those supporters of the supposed opposition as basically being Trotskyists, And it tends to be the case that it's a lot of non-Jewish workers who are attacking Jewish workers as basically being being Trotskyist. And they begin to sort of assert in in this moment that the real reason why these, these people are angry in this moment is be- precisely because of ethnic or or uh, national solidarity with Trotsky himself. So what begins as a kind of economistic um, uh, moment of of worker anger that is driven by a crisis of so, of a social crisis and an economic crisis comes to be reinscribed and re-read at the local level and then, as I argue, at the party level as a whole as a phenomenon of of ethnic solidarity and uh, and ethnic opposition and so Trotskyism itself becomes, in some sense, inscribed as a certain type of Jewish deviation as well and um. And so this is uh this is i think rather critical to to um not only to the again it's not it's not this is not simply a story that that is about the process of jewish integration in in, in this moment, but it really shows the way in which uh the Soviet story of high politics is being filtered down to the low faculty the, the low the low factory level and the ways in which local individuals are, in certain sense, interpreting the politics that are being driven from above, but they're not being driven by the, necessarily by those politics from above.
0: So your last chapter is titled Antisemitism and the Stalin Revolution. Um, tell us about the campaign against antisemitism that accompanied the Stalin Revolution, and also if you could uh, outline some of the conclusions of, of your book as a whole.
1: Yeah, uh, well, the, the the again the the anti-Semitism campaign is, is it c- emerges rather um, not quite simultaneously, but slightly after these anti trotsky campaigns, and there's a lot of overlap between them. And it really starts uh, with in Belarus and really for a lot of the Soviet Union as well, because it became a sort of cause celebre. But there, in nineteen in November 1928, there's a very infamous mo- moment in Bielorussia in a, in a glassmaking factory. Where this one uh, young Jewish woman, it's revealed in an expose that's written in the Soviet newspaper, has been exposed to uh, systemic violence uh, at the hands of her, of some of her co-workers and systemic anti-Semitic violence. And they're basically attacking her as a a, uh, Jew in a factory where she doesn't belong because the glassmaking factory had been a overwhelmingly Belarusian uh, institution. Very few Jews worked there until the moment of Stalin and stalinist industrialization where the glassmaking factories like all industries in this moment are expanded and are in, and there's a massive attempt to productivize laborers in these factories And they – in the process of trying to expand and productivize laborers, they're also bringing in new laborers. And in this moment, what that means is that they're beginning to turn to the shtetl where they had never recruited laborers before. And they're bringing in increasingly large numbers of Jews into these factories that had been overwhelmingly Belarusian prior to this. And so there is this – the the, the chapter sort of looks at the way in which campaigns against anti-Semitism are emerging precisely because on one level – there's a massive grassroots upsurgence of anti-Semitism at the factory level across across not only Belarusia, but the Soviet Union in the 1928 and 1929 period. And you see this not simply in Belarusia, but in really uh, in Yuli Varan uh, and others write about this in in the moment itself. Mm-hmm. And what I try to um, think about in this moment is the way in which this um, upsurgence of anti-Semitism is tied to the breakdown of social relations and in the factory, and really the the pressures that are generated by this this demand to ever uh, to expand production and to intensify production at the factory level, which is being read by workers as a certain type of abstract domination that 's being implemented on them from above, and they 're reading it as basically the work and the machinations. Of of the state, which is frequently being read as being Jewish, and being a sort of uh, a a, uh, kind of in a conspiratorial fashion, is is being read as as a a certain type of Jewish domination that's being implemented on the on the Jewish on on the working class as a whole, and that's in the 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 I I would say the violence that is emerging on the factory floor is in some sense a, a displaced violence and of of angry workers who are seeing their social position increasingly eroded as their, as their wages are eroded as their, as the demand for their labor time is increased. And they're, they're projecting that violence onto the most immediate um, objects they can find, which are these workers who are basically being brought into the factory in a process of integration. So I look at the way in which the, the state, introduces this massive anti campaign against anti-semitism, these anti-anti-semitism campaigns, which again target the factory floor. And there, they are, uh, this, and what I argue is that the, the anti-anti-semitism campaigns were not simply a campaign against race hatred, although they were also that, but they were simultaneously a campaign that was effectively being used to productivize laborers as well. They were being used to, to, um, to, to, um, to, in a certain way, suppress or channel these types of angers and and uh, anxieties and and impulses that were emerging from the, the shop floor at a time when the shop floor was being subjected to in- increasingly radical forms of social uh, transformation. And so I I um, see this anti anti-Semitism campaign and also the phenomenon of anti-Semitism as well as both being tied to this emerging moment of a of a type of a new type of revolution that's emerging within the Bolshevik Revolution as a whole, which is the period of the Stalin Revolution, and and try to make the argument that all that all of these cultural phenomena or these ethnic phenomena are are simultaneously they're not they can't simply be be understood as manifestations of economic crisis but they're fundamentally structured by this moment of economic transformation that's being unleashed by the Stalin revolution and so i think that if i sort of turn from that to the kind of big claims of the book i, I what i what i show over the course of these of these chapters Basically, beginning with a process of revolutionary transformation that is just utterly, in some sense, inflected with um, with the, uh, what I call a Jewish revolution. These this process of Jews who are entering into the party, who are integral to, to Soviet institutions, party institutions, and whatnot, over the course of the 1920s, they're they're in various ways, whether it's as Bundists or as Trotskyists or as speculators or whatnot or as Poustoy they are being in in some ways inscribed in different moments as being as being uh in one way or another outside of the the, the um acceptable realm of of uh soviet practice and ideological practices and and soviet politics and it, these are campaigns that are that are frequently exclusionary but they're not simply exclusionary they're also in some sense campaigns that are designed to um to inform Jewish workers about what it means to be properly Bolshevik. And so there's a process whereby the, from the beginning of the revolution to the end of the 1920s and, and the onset of the Stalin revolution, Jews are being in, in some sense uh, into, simultaneously integrated into Soviet society. But the cost of integration is in some ways this this stripping away of all of these former forms of of Jewish political and, and social life that in some sense made them distinctive in the first place. And it's, there's a turn in this process from a kind of revolution at the beginning in the 1920s that not only could tolerate but really was dependent on its pluralities to the end of the 1920s, this moment of the onset of the Stalin Revolution where there's an increasingly universalist, universalizing a political tendency where all of these sort of other forms of politics that had percolated at the beginning of the revolution are being suppressed. But simultaneously, there's a certain type of turn to a type of social uniformity where the types of forms of Jewish social production wherein in the workshops, in these small, in these small artisanal shops is being eradicated in the process of the Stalin revolution because the Stalin, the Stalin industrial revolution is just, is, is, um, is effectively trying to not eradicate, but subsume these types of smaller forms of production into a much, much more vast project of over, of overarching uh, socialist industrial reconstruction and Jews are in some sense, like all people in the society are faced with this moment of whether they're going to fight against it or whether they're in some sense going to uh, fold themselves into it. And it's this process um, of folding themselves into, and, and really by the end of the 1920s, that's the only choice that's left because in some sense, the state is there and the state is, is by this point massive. The party has consolidated itself. And so I'm, um, I, I i see this moment of folding into the this kind of universal universalist discourse of the, of the Stalin Revolution as the end of what I call the Jewish Revolution, but also the the beginning of a, of a of a type of, or not the beginning the continuation of a type of integrate of integration that is inherent in the revolution from the beginning, and that 's a painful process it 's a process that produces all sorts of tensions within the Jewish community. But it ultimately um, – especially if one looks at it within the context of what's happening across Central and Eastern Europe in this period, you know this this is kind of – this is of tremendous consequence for Jews living within the Soviet Union. They're, they're, the fact that the, the Stalinist state is launching a campaign against anti-Semitism in the context of rising anti-Semitism uh, in, obviously in Germany but across Eastern Europe – yes it in some sense is is a is a manipulative campaign and double sided as I call it, but at the same time, there's also a real content there and this has uh, profound effects for for thinking about what happens in the Soviet union during the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties as well but um so I would say that that is uh th- those are the the sort of big claims, but the other big claim is that throughout this process. Jewish identity and and social and political identity is constantly being negotiated and and restructured in moments that are profoundly themselves structured by economic processes and economic crises. Moments of economic crises produce ambivalences about Jews that uh, that are not simply – I mean, we see this, obviously, in the context of Central and Eastern Europe. What fascinates me about this story is that this is happening in the Soviet Union in a society that understands itself as post-capitalist, in a society that understands itself as post-racist, and even there, these types of social pressures are, um, these types of ideological forms are emerging out of a social of social crises that are being unleashed across the totality of the globe, really, by the onset of the global crisis at the end of the 1920s. And it's that relationship between crisis and politics that forms the heart of the of the book. I would say.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's an, um, a really excellent, uh, summation of, of the main arguments of the book. And, uh, it's a really fascinating book. Um, and I think it's a, yeah, it's a really brilliant piece of scholarship. So thanks very much for, um, talking to us today about it, Andrew. Thanks. Um, before we let you go, I just want to quickly ask, I know you're over in, uh, Moscow, um, working in the archives at the moment. So I want to ask about, uh, what you're working on next.
1: Well, I'm working on two projects briefly. Uh, The the first one is a a project that I'm very excited about. It it looks at the writing of um, popular history in the transnational Yiddish sphere between 1871 and 1948 and the relationship between the writing of popular history and the reimagining of both Jewish and general history and the relationship between that and the development of Jewish internationalist socialism over that period So that's one project that I'm working on in the libraries with lots of Yiddish pamphlets, and it's great. Um, And then I'm simultaneously working on a project on uh, the relationship between Stalinist anti-fascist campaigns and anti-Trotskyist campaigns in the 1930s and their relationship to the Great Terror, and that I'm working on in the archives here in Moscow.
0: That's brilliant. Well, um, we hope to definitely have you on the program again to hopefully talk about um, those projects. Um, but, uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about, um, this book. So with us today, we had Andrew Sloin, assistant professor of history at the Baruch College at the City University of New York. And he talked to us about his new book, The Jewish Revolution in Belarusia, Economy, Race and Bolshevik Power. Uh, and it was published this year by Indiana University Press. So thanks again.
1: Thank you very much.